time. We've been doing a series on, on mental health and, and thinking about it because it is something that, that is collectively needed, and I, I know that it is something that is very relevant. It's been for me, me personally. I know many in, in our congregation have mentioned that to me that it's been a blessing to them uh, as well. And one of the reasons for that, I think, is to think about that just spirituality in its base is mental health. Like practicing spiritual things, uh, prayer, meditation, scripture reading, it, it helps you to get to a better place. And that doesn't mean you don't necessarily, like at one point, maybe need to talk to a professional to help get some, some help uh, where you are. But these spiritual practices that we have, have done uh, forever, like they help us to center ourselves on God and it helps us to recognize that you and I aren't running the world. One of the most simple songs that has such a deep theology is God's got the whole world in his hands. Like if we could just get the theology of that, we'd be doing pretty well, right? God's got the whole world in his hands. And prayer and, and centering on God helps us to then remember that you and I like, don't have control. And that's good news. Psalm 46 says this very simply. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. And this is a hard posture for us, isn't it? It's a hard posture for me to slow down, to center myself on a God that's beyond me, to contemplate a God that is beyond me. And I'll admit as a pastor, it's, it's difficult at times because I'm exposed to the people's like best part of life, but also some of the worst parts of life. And I'm able to, to sometimes ask those, those questions of God, what, what, is, what is going on? Why, why don't you do this? But to still our hearts and to put them in this posture is so important. And perhaps it's harder than ever. This yarn represents all of human history, and it's drawn to scale. <laughs> I got exactly the right amount of yarn. So this represents like thousands of years, and the, you, however many thousands of years humans have been around, whatever it is. And so this is up to the, the present moment. This is just what happened right now. And as you think about this, and it's, it's very, very long, I don't want to unravel it because then I'd have to put it back together. Uh, but it's very, very, very long. And you think about like all of human history, all the stuff that has happened. And you could argue, I mean, we could talk about the scaling, but we could come to, to right here. And I would argue that this is one of the most things that still changes us today. Right here, 1879, Thomas Edison invents the light bulb. And that's something that still like, changes the world. But just think about how much of human history has happened without the light bulb. And I went to elementary school at Thomas Edison Elementary. Go Chargers. So <laughs> I am very invested. In but think about like, how much, like, that, and that's something that we all take for granted. Like, it's all, we just have the ability to light the world however we want. And that, we don't even think of that as technology, right? I mean, that's, that's not technology. But for most of human history, like, we've lived without even electricity, and the light bulb. Historians say that since the light bulb has been invented, the average American has gone from sleeping 11 and a half hours a day to just over six. 
No wonder you get a little tired on Tuesday. Actually, LeBron James, one of the best basketball players of all time, he says that one of his advantages is that he sleeps 10 hours a night. He makes sure because he knows how important that rest is. And so just think about like how, how much has changed and how you and I have way more expectations on our lives because if, if you or I were to sleep 12 hours a night, we'd probably call it lazy, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's not something that we would think of. It's like, that's just not what we would go for because we have the ability to do all this stuff in the world. And again, this is just very, very, very recent in human history. And then there's even more developments that are even further along way to the end of, of this line. In 2007, the iPhone is invented. And that has just made us go faster and faster and faster. There was this hope, I think, that all of this technology was going to make life so easy. In fact, there was a Senate subcommittee in 1967. This is way before uh, the phone. But the Senate subcommittee said in 1985, that this is in 1967, they said in 1985, the average American will only have to work 22 hours a week for 27 weeks a year because like it's going to be so fast and we're going to be so fit. like the things that was taking us a long time to do it's going to be so much better and so much faster and it's going to solve all of our problems but in reality it's just made us more and more hurried there's things that we're always doing it used to be that back in the day, the first people that had like the new technology of a pager was an emergency room doctor because it matters, right? I mean, you're considering people's lives. And so that actually like added a lot of stress uh, to the emergency room doctor's life. But now all of us have even more than just a pager. We have the ability to be connected to the entire world all the time. And it keeps us at this hurried pace and it makes a difference. There was a study that looked at the most hurried um, professions, and this isn't just like me, you know, like telling you guys. The most hurried professions uh, they, they found were doctors, lawyers, and pastors. So I'm right there with you guys. <laughs> I'm not like an expert at this. But just think about how different your world and my world is because we live in this era, which literally, like, we are guinea pigs as far as how this affects all of us. And in the midst of that, we hear this psalm, be still and know that I am God. And again, it's a challenge. I think it's always been a challenge. But for you and I, this is the way that we live. Maybe it is more than ever. What's interesting about this psalm is it was written by David, and he writes it at a time of, of tribal warfare where he was often in battle or people were trying to battle him or he was running from people. David lives a life that's just crazy. He literally, I mean, he worried about his life or a foreign invasion or attack, and I'm not saying that that can't happen to us. But oftentimes I think that the things that I can let be part of my life that I'm just like constantly having in front of, of my head is stuff that's just not that important. And I'm just running through it over and over again because it's easy for me to just be wired that way. And, and David, again, lived in a time where things were a lot more difficult and a lot more pressing. And he tries to remind himself and us, be still and know that you aren't in control the world. 
I think it helps us to step back and center ourselves to remember who God really is. I spoke about LeBron James just a second ago. This is a basketball-themed sermon. Who would you guys say is the greatest basketball player of all time? Michael Jordan. Most people say Michael Jordan. Kareem. Did you say, did you say Prince? Prince was very good at basketball. Prince? Uh, all right, Prince. I, I was unaware, unaware of that. Um, Tayshawn Prince was a player, but not in like the top... But most, most people would say Michael Jordan. Uh, there's, there's other answers to that question, but um, it feels like every other, day, every other day they're debating that on sports shows. I don't really know why they always have to talk about it. Like, the amount of times in, in my life that I've heard the name Michael Jordan or LeBron James, it's just overwhelming. Uh, but maybe Michael Jordan. But what's interesting about Michael Jordan, who is generally considered uh, to be the greatest basketball player of all time, is as you compare him to, someone said Kareem, uh, Kareem is unbelievably tall. And he's a center, and and most of like the top 10 basketball players of all time are are Shaq or Kareem, these these super large, unbelievably tall men. And it's not that Jordan was was small. I think he was 6'6". I mean, he's, he's not tiny, but he's not seven foot and like Shaquille O'Neal and can just like back everybody down and just dunk on them because he's just bigger than any of bigger and coordinated. There's like tall people in history that are not very coordinated, but, um, and then he's not Jordan, although he was a good, a good shooter and a good athlete. He wasn't Steph Curry either. Like Steph Curry has completely changed the game because he can shoot threes from basically the um, mid court line and they have to start guarding him there. So he's completely uh, changed like the current NBA. Jordan was a good shooter, but not like an excellent shooter. But it's interesting. It's kind of the total package that makes him so elite. And the guy who wrote the book on Michael Jordan, literally a biography about him with Michael Jordan, his name Mark Vansel, um, said this about Jordan. He said, his gift was not that he could jump high, run fast, and shoot a basketball, though he could do all those things very well. His gift was that he was completely present, and that was the separator. His gift was that in every single moment, he was completely present. And that was the separator. And that is what the biographer Michael Jordan said was the thing that made him so unbelievable. As I think about my life, I think about your life as well, the greatest gift that you have is your undivided attention. And if you have a job, someone pays you to give your undivided attention to something for I mean, it's not as good as the subcommittee said, but for 50 hours a week, perhaps, to give your your undivided attention to that craft or that thing. Or as you think about friendships, it's friends who you give like your undivided attention to. It helps you to deepen your bond. And practicing that and thinking about how to move forward in that. I think we learn it from stillness before God. I think we learn it from centering our hearts on who God is. And that stillness, I think, then comes out of us and helps us to be more and more the people that we're called to be. That stillness before God 
helps us to have just a little bit more patience with that Starbucks barista who gets our order wrong, which we always should have patience for because the hardest jobs are the jobs that don't get paid very much, unfortunately, it seems like, because those jobs are incredibly difficult. Stillness before God helps us not just respond when someone does something to us, when we get that, that email that starts to make our temperature rise a little bit and we are tempted to respond in all caps. Stillness before God helps us to be the people that we're called to be. And to remember that there is a God and I'm not it. I love how Psalm 8 says this, look, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you've established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you've set in place, what is humanity that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? What is humanity? What is it that, that you would care about us? And there's an appropriate kind of smallness for us all. There's an appropriate ability to, to set our hearts back and to say, I'm not the one who's in charge of everything, and ultimately that's really good news. There's an appropriate smallness of heart where, where we get to say, God, you care about me. Like, who is, who are you that you care even about me, that you care about me intimately in this way, that you care about what's going on, you care about what is going on in my heart, in my life? And I get it. Faith at times is difficult. The spiritual practices that we've talked about in this series, they're, they're difficult. They take work. They take dedication. Prayer is always one of those things. It's like four steps forward and three steps back, and you celebrate the one step. And Paul in the New Testament writes about how he wrestles in prayer, and this is somebody who like literally saw Jesus come to him. So if you struggle with prayer, don't worry about it. It's, stuff is hard, but it's worth it. And it changes us. These practices aren't just nice ideas. They help us as we think about mental health. So generally, people who are kind of projecting what, what faith looks like going forward, they say generally that the United States is probably following a, a path like Europe. Europe has less church participation, kind of has always been like a little bit ahead of, of the United States in that way. And if you've ever done uh, uh, some time in Europe traveling around, you can go to see these cathedrals that like took the townspeople 200 years to make, and there's eight people there on a Sunday morning. And there are definitely like um, good Christian communities in those spaces, in, in parts of Europe. I'm not saying that it's like all dire, but generally people say that like the Western world, the United States is, is following in the pattern um, of Europe and kind of going in that direction as far as church involvement. And I don't know if that's true or not, but that is generally what people um, have said. And what's interesting though, is as you think about like that, that people are participating a little bit less in, in faith communities and being involved in those spaces is that just like in the United States, 
Europe has a pretty dynamic mental health problem. A quote that I, I ran across kind of about this says, Europeans are plagued by mental and neurological illnesses with almost 165 million people or 38% of the population suffering each year from a brain disorder such as depression, anxiety, insomnia, dementia, dementia or according to a new large health study. So about 40% of Europeans have, have this struggle. And some stats that say the U.S. is about there too, like in mental health space, like they're about at... 40%. And I understand sometimes walking away from faith, it, it's, it's hard, or, or church, you know, sometimes when people tell me their story about why they walked away uh, from church, because as a pastor, they tell you it all the time, you're like on a plane, you're like, I'm a pastor, like, oh, let me tell you this, you're like, okay, here, I, I got a few hours, and, and I, re I really don't mind, I, I enjoy listening to it, but when, when people share, like, their stories about walking away from faith, or why faith was irrelevant to them, or why, you know, they decided they don't want to participate anymore, generally, I nod my head and go, yeah, I don't know, it sounds like if, if, I was you, I might have done the same thing based on what I'm hearing and like your story and whatever it is that uh, th these individuals uh, will share with me. So I understand walking away. But sometimes I just want to ask, but what is it that you're walking toward? And if you're walking in that direction, what is it that you're walking toward and in the direction of. I don't know that it always looks all that great. I was so touched by the song that Nick and, and Chris sang about walking with, with God in the garden. I mean, that one is one that just makes me think of my grandparents. I don't know about you. But I think about how for my grandma, like faith was, was such a real and such an important thing. I have a note in my Bible that she just says, like all these verses that she remembers and says, you know, be, be at the church house as often as you can. That's what, that's what she wrote to me. And I understand it's, it's a different time now. Again, we're living in a, a very different time. What are we walking toward? And how are we helping ourselves to connect to something that's deeper than just the moment? Because one of the issues with technology and connection is we have the ability within moments to know like when anything bad happens in the world all over the place, you know, and it's like, wow, something terrible happened and name that country. And then an hour later, it's like something else happened somewhere. It's overwhelming. And we live in this space, and I know it's true for me that, that my mood can go up when I get the right text message, like, hey, Brian, I can do communion Sunday. I'm like, sweet, I'm happy. Even Brian, I can do communion. So it's a, we live in this space where it's like we're just letting, letting our mood. So please, please say yes when I ask you. Uh, but... <laughs> Oh, we, we live in this space where it's like, okay, this happened, or, or that happened, or this, this was, was going, and it's just like we just are, are just going from like almost emotion to emotion. And we need some centering to be still and know and to remember that not only that there is a God, but that God cares and that you're small that I'm small.
I love cities. I've lived in cities most of my life. I, if you didn't know, I grew up at this church, so I, I love Los Angeles. Uh, go Rams. Uh, that's, but I, 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 love, I love living in the city. I, I did three years in um, Abilene, Texas, which is the middle of nowhere, and that was enough for me for grad school. Uh, so I, I, love, I love Los Angeles. I love living, living in a big city. But it's really interesting that like cities in some way, that's where such a large portion of the population lives today across the world. Uh, it's hard with all the lights of Los Angeles for us to actually see the stars. Isn't that interesting? And I think that's symbolic of how we can kind of keep building on our achievements and keep doing all these things. And it's great. Technology is great. You know, praise God for a light bulb. Like, it's, it's awesome. But do we, in the midst of all this busyness, lose our center and lose then who it is that we're called to be? What's interesting about the Christian faith is that it, it moves. As you think about other world religions, they are somewhat centered. So Hinduism is mainly around where it started. Buddhism is mainly where it started. Not that there aren't Hindus and Buddhists around the world, but just like generally the largest population of that belief group, it's around kind of where, where it started still. And there was a, a story in, um, Christian story named Andrew Wells who said this, there's a certain vulnerability about the, at the heart of Christianity. Sorry, we need to skip one slide. I think it's up there. It'll be just a second. So there's a certain vulnerability at the heart of Christianity. You may say this is the vulnerability of the cross. Whenever Christianity comes to a place and it takes hold, people tend to flourish. And this is true historically. Historically, generally people get more wealthy and, and work ethic generally increases. But eventually, people get wealthy and comfortable and the center of Christianity just moves on. And so I've talked about Europe and then possibly the, the religious trajectory of the United States today. But in South America and in Africa, Christianity is booming. It's just going crazy. Like if you think of the average Christian today, they say, think of a, a single mother in Africa walking for miles to go and worship. If you're thinking about the average person. In fact, the largest church in the UK was planted by uh, African missionaries. It's, like, it's kind of, it's like, wait, what? Like, missionaries are coming back? Yes, because there's a lot to teach us. I thought that quote was interesting, that Christianity keeps moving because it's just easy for us when we get wealthy, when we get comfortable. So yeah, for the big things, I'll pray. Or I'll rely on God, you know, when I have a really big thing that's coming up, a big test or something. I'll, I'll pray like right before that happens. But to actually live in the presence of God more than just every once in a while. It's easy when you're comfortable and, and wealthy to say, God, I'll, I'll worry about the big stuff later, but um, I'll, I got the rest. I got most of it. And I think it's easy for us with the comfort that we have to just start to believe that it's kind of about us. What would it look like for you? What does it look like for me? To find ways to still our hearts before God. To slow down. To receive the wonderful news that you and I are not in control. 
to sometimes sing songs like that song that Nick and Chris led us in that just makes me think of my grandparents, helps me to get outside of my moment a little bit. And to remember that God is at the center. Because ultimately, that's good news. And it lifts that, that burden off and helps us to remember that God who is in control and that that God deeply loves you and me and cares enough about us to know us and want to be in relationship with us. So I hope that as you think about faith, and again, it's hard sometimes, and sometimes there's more questions than answers. I hope that as you think about your faith and your faith in your life, may you understand what you're always walking toward. And may you and I truly seek God with our lives so that we can put some of the anxieties that are in our hearts into God's hands over and over again. Let's pray, and then we'll sing together. God, we'll take just 30 seconds to be still before you right now. God, we bring our own anxieties and, and our fears and our joys and our needs before you. Remember that you are God and we are not. May we remember your goodness and your love, which continues to change us. And may we find times in the busyness and hurried way that we live to still our hearts before you and to remember who you are. May we remember these ancient words if we would be still and know that you are God. Bless us as we Remember that this week. Be with us right now, even as we sing, as we lift your name one more time. In your son Jesus, I pray. Amen.